0: This is episode number 372 with Rich Roll. The Melissa Ambrosini Show. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week I'll be getting up close and personal with thoughts leaders from around the globe as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Named one of the 25 fittest men in the world by men's fitness and the guru of reinvention by outside... Rich is a globally renowned ultra-endurance athlete, wellness advocate, best-selling author, husband, and father of four. Rich shares his inspirational story of addiction, redemption, and optimal health in his number one best-selling memoir, Finding Ultra, and the cookbook and lifestyle guides, The Plant-Powered Way and The Plant-Powered Way Italia, which he co-authored with his beautiful wife, Julie Pyatt. Rich has been featured on CNN, on the cover of Outside Magazine, and been profiled everywhere from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal. His latest book, Voicing Change, features timeless wisdom and inspiration from the wildly popular Rich Roll podcast, one of the top 100 podcasts in the world with over 100 million downloads. How amazing is that? I absolutely love Rich and Julie. This is the second time Rich has been on my podcast. He was on another episode with his beautiful wife, Julie, for a relationship goals episode. I just loved that conversation so much. If you haven't listened to it, check it out. And in today's episode, we chat about his inspiring lifestyle transformation and recovery from a dangerous addiction, how to diagnose an addiction and aim for true recovery, why the plant powered lifestyle is the right choice for yourself and the planet. How to build a conscious relationship and actually make it work. Why Rich chooses to sleep in a tent instead of sleeping next to his wife. This is fascinating. Why you should never take your relationship for granted and nurture it every single day. How to consciously raise our children and acknowledge them as sovereign beings. The plant-based 30-day trial and all the reasons you should give it a try today. Plus, so much more. And for everything that Rich and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 372. And without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Rich Roll. Rich, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you here for a second time. Before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. It's nice to see you, and it's a pleasure to be back. I did not have any breakfast today. I'm doing a little bit of an intermittent fast today, so I'm waiting until dinner time to eat. So, zero. Water. I had water.
0: Awesome. I love that you are doing that. It's such a common theme, especially amongst the men that I get on my show. Lots of men are doing this and we'll dive deeper into your journey during the episode. But for those that haven't heard you on the show before, you were on here on episode number 83 with your beautiful wife, Julie, and that was for a Relationship Goals episode. Later in the show, I want to chat to you about relationships. But before we go there, can you tell us a little bit about your story? For people who haven't listened to that episode, for people who don't know about you, you were a lawyer, you've been through addiction, you've come out the other end, you're now living a very conscious plant-based life, you're also an ultra-endurance athlete. How did this all happen for you?
1: I have no idea how it all happened. It all happened very organically. I can tell you that it wasn't the result of breaking out a whiteboard and trying to chart some kind of course for myself. It's really been the product of just continuing to grow spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. And I wake up every day wondering how did I get to this place? You know, I feel very privileged to get to do what I do today as a podcaster and as an author and a speaker and all the kind of things that you do and and care about. It's been really a great privilege, but it certainly wasn't the, you know, like I said, the product of some kind of goal that I set for myself other than a commitment to pursuing the things that gave meaning to my life, trying to find a way to be of service in a broader way and following my curiosity, really. I mean, it started, like you said, you know, I was an athlete as a younger person. I swam at Stanford in college and then alcoholism kind of entered the picture and not only derailed my swimming career, but really derailed my life. It was a progressive thing, of course that started out fun, but became dark. And over a, a decade plus of, of my drinking career took me to some pretty dark places until I was pretty desperate and alone at the end. And, you know, I was able to get sober at 31. I went to a treatment center for a hundred days and was introduced for the very first time to a toolkit and a sort of canon of spiritual principles that still guide my life today. And that was really the initiation of thinking about the world and myself through a new lens. And the changes that I've undergone over the years are really a product of that experience. That's where it all began for me. But, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It's taken a long time. But over the years, I've been able to continue to maintain my commitment to that. So in the wake of getting sober, My focus really was just to try to be a productive, responsible member of society again. But over time, that kind of trickled into an addictive relationship with work. I was still a corporate lawyer at the time and really drove that into the ground. So such that, you know, by the time I was 39, I had kind of achieved that ambition of becoming financially successful and respectable human being, once again, somebody who could look people in the eye and tell the truth and show up when they said they would show up and all those kinds of things that are um, part and parcel of of being a sober human. Um, but what I overlooked was my health and well-being. You know, I was 50 pounds overweight and really medicating my general malaise of my professional choices through food. You know, I became a junk food addict and had really put distance between myself and a lot of things that brought me joy as a young person, like swimming, like being fit and active. And I had a bit of a health scare shortly before my 40th birthday that really forced me to look at myself once again through a different lens. And I sort of think about it as another opportunity to go to a different kind of rehab, not for drugs and alcohol, but for lifestyle choices. And that really rooted me in this journey that I'm still on, which is how to live optimally, how to be the best, most fully actualized human being that I possibly can. And my kind of tableau for that exploration was, and still is, endurance sports. So I immersed myself in that subculture and started training and participating in some pretty crazy races. Not because I wanted to win races or be some kind of celebrated athlete. It was really a spiritual journey, like that kind of suffering and all that time alone was my opportunity to really wrestle with a lot of the deeper questions about who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and, and express. And those experiences taught me a lot and they really did answer those questions for myself. And as a byproduct of that i ended up doing fairly well in some of those races and that captured some media attention because i was on a plant-based diet what's this middle-aged lawyer doing you know he's doing these crazy races and he's doing it without eating any animal products like that was intriguing at the time i mean it's much more mainstream now than it, than it was back in 2008 2009 and that gave me an opportunity and a voice to talk about things that i cared about which then in turn led to the opportunity to write a book, Finding Ultra, which is this memoir that I wrote in 2012. And then my wife and I wrote some cookbooks and I started this podcast, and it's all kind of gone from there. I've been doing the podcast now for eight years, and it's just grown organically over time. It never occurred to me that it would be a vocation, but that's certainly what it's what it's become. And again, you know, it's a privilege and an honor to have the opportunity to talk to people like yourself about issues that not only I care about about and you care about, but I think are very pertinent to every and relatable to everybody, no matter you know, what they're going through in their lives.
0: Absolutely. And I love your podcast. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's one of my favorite podcasts. My husband and I listen to it regularly. So thank you for bringing that to our ears. And you touched on your addictions to alcohol and workaholism, and whether it's drugs or social media or shopping, whatever addiction it is. So many people are out there listening who maybe have an addiction or know someone who has. What was the first step for you to take action to change? What was the first thing that happened for you?
1: Well, I think in my particular case, on some level, I was aware very early on in my drinking career that I was at least a problem drinker. And over time, in my kind of subconscious, I knew that I was an alcoholic. So the process of getting well involved stripping away the layers of denial so that I could look at myself objectively and then summon the courage to actually communicate with another individual honestly about how I was living, which was terrifying and brought up a tremendous amount of shame. I had a very, and still do, I consider myself... They'll, you know always be an alcoholic but it was a very acute case but I think an argument can be made that addiction lives on a spectrum and to some extent we're all addicts in some form or another most people have a very mild form of addiction the kind of grace and and gift of having an acute case of, of addiction is that At some point, you're going to have to deal with it. If it's in a low-grade form, you could perhaps live your entire life without really reckoning with it. But I think whether it's, you know, our relationship to our phones or, like you said, to shopping or to relationships or anything that takes you out of whatever discomfort you're experiencing and provides you some relief. Some level of distraction that prevents you from being as connected to who you are as you can possibly be can be characterized on some level as an addiction to the extent that it is not in service to your highest self.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And I read a story about a car accident or a car incident that was kind of like the trigger for you that made you go and seek help. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I'd been drinking and driving for many years and, you know, doing it in a way where I was getting away with it. Check my white privilege a little bit for that because I got pulled over plenty of times. But when I moved to Los Angeles in 1996, it didn't take long before the cops started to get involved with my errant behaviors. And I ended up getting two DUIs in a period of two months blowing a 0.29 the first time and a 0.27 the second time, which for people that you know have any sense of blood alcohol levels, that's extremely, extremely drunk. Most people are passed out when they have a blood alcohol that high. The first instance involved me rear-ending an elderly woman at a stoplight at three in the morning, and the second involved driving the wrong way down a one-way street at 2.30 in the morning and getting pulled over by the cops and both times going to prison. And my boss finding out and lawyers getting involved, an almost certain jail sentence to be delivered upon me because nobody gets away with two DUIs in, in California and escapes jail time. And that was very scary for me. And that was the first instance in which it became undeniable that my drinking problem was more than a problem and was indeed full-blown alcoholism. And you know, with that, I was court-ordered to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was my introduction to recovery at that time, but I wasn't really ready to hear the message. Like I was just scared of going to jail and trying to get the law off my back. So it didn't stick, but it was the first time that I tried to stop drinking and realized just how powerless I was over this, that this demon that I had was really, truly all powerful. And I had to go through a lot more pain before ultimately I was able to get sober. And it, you know, as they say in in 12 step, like it takes what it takes. And I'm just, I'm just grateful that I was able to find my way to this place.
0: And what advice would you have for anyone who might be having this realization right now that they need to do something? They are aware that they have an addiction, like, and they need to take the next step. Like what advice would you give to them?
1: Yeah. I mean, the first thing is, Addiction is a self diagnosed disease. Somebody can't tell you your, I mean, they can reflect back to you your behavior, but you have to diagnose yourself. And only you know the extent to which your behavior, whether it involves substances or just behavioral patterns, is causing you problems and pain. And if that is the case, if you're being honest with yourself, the first step is really to raise your hand and ask for help. And that's the scariest part, inviting somebody else into the equation that you trust as a guided counselor. And to be honest with them, like I said earlier, like tell somebody that you're hurting, that you don't know what to do, and that you have this problem and it needs to be dealt with. And I think that's the first step. And, you know, everybody that I've spoken to who can summon that kind of courage to to be honest in that way, there's a a tremendous amount of relief that comes with that because you're holding on to so much shame and embarrassment and you feel very alone and you think that you're the only one who has this problem and nobody else could possibly understand the circumstances of your predicament. And when you release that and you invite somebody in, you take that first powerful and most important step on the road to recovery.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's so powerful. And then once you do that, There's room to grow. There's room to evolve. There's room to heal. And it's just that first step that we need to take to overcome any addiction. And there is a spectrum. And first step is acknowledging where you're at and sharing that with someone. So thank you. Thanks for that. I think even a lot of younger people, they say to me, I'm addicted to my phone, Melissa. Like, what do I do? I'm addicted to my phone. I'm addicted to Instagram. So it might not be drugs or alcohol, but you know that's still an addiction so that's why
1: yeah and the the inclination is to try to solve it by yourself and you know most addicts you know want to do it privately without telling anybody what's going on and you know it's only through that process that they become connected to how powerless they are because those trials usually end up in failure so the point that i'm trying to make is that not only in most cases can you not do it alone like you shouldn't want to do it alone. There are people who are willing to help, and whatever you're going through, other people have gone through it and have come out the other side. And enlisting them to your aid is a crucial aspect of this. And there's so many resources available now, and it's become so much less stigmatized than it once was. So in the age of coronavirus, you know, a lot of 12-step meetings have gone virtual, and there's resources online. You can find Zoom links and you can pop into any number of different recovery communities for whatever you're going through. And you could do it with your video camera off and you know, still participate and hear that and spare yourself whatever you know, angst or, or fear or shame that you have about being public in that regard. But the important thing is taking that first step and then following it through with another step and another step.
0: Mm, absolutely. You mentioned before that you were also, in your darker period, you were 50 pounds overweight and you now live a plant-based lifestyle. You are a plant-based athlete and you've achieved incredible things, which we'll talk about. But apart from, obviously, the health side of things, like you lost all of this weight, your health improved, your fitness improved, what are some of the other benefits that you personally have witnessed or experienced from living a plant-based life?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think I tend to look at all of these things to harken back to what I said earlier as part and parcel of a spiritual journey and, you know, not to put too metaphysical a bent on it, but I really think that it has broadened my aperture on life in general and our sort of role and responsibility as conscious citizens and consumers on this planet. You know, I, I think of the plant-based lifestyle as nature's perfectly designed way of eating and living, because not only is it a fantastic way to opt out of all of these chronic lifestyle ailments that are unnecessarily killing and debilitating millions of people every single year through diabetes and heart disease and obesity and high blood pressure, etc. it's also A much more sustainable lifestyle. It has a lighter footprint on the planet by eating plant-based foods close to their natural state and when possible to eat organic or locally grown foods. You're basically voting for the future of the planet and future generations by opting out of large-scale animal agriculture that is, quite frankly, raping the planet and causing irreparable harm to the future of our environment for not just us, but future generations to come. So there's the sustainability environmental bent to it. And it's also a more compassionate way to live. Like you're opting out of this cycle of slaughtering, you know, billions of animals every year, in my opinion, unnecessarily. And I think with that comes like this sense of lightness, I guess I would characterize it, in the way that when you get sober and you unburden yourself of all of that shame and embarrassment and all of your secrets, you walk the planet a little bit lighter. And I think when blazing a plant-based lifestyle, you know, for me, it just makes me feel like my actions are much more in alignment with my values. And and there's a kind of a, you know, an esteem building aspect to that as well.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Now, you and your beautiful wife, I mentioned, have been on the podcast before on episode 83 for a conscious relationship goals episode. And you say that Julie has been the backbone to everything that you've achieved, which is so beautiful. When I saw that quote, I was like, that is so sweet. I want to know from you personally, what are some of the keys to having a conscious relationship and how do you make it work?
1: I mean, there's so many to it. I mean, Julie and I have now been together 20 years at this point, which is crazy because prior to meeting her, I had never been in a relationship for more than like a year and a half and had never been in a healthy relationship either. So, you know, she's been a great teacher and I certainly picked the right person and I feel blessed every day that she's my partner in life. And one of the reasons why we're able to have this successful marriage is that We communicate with each other, honestly. We're open with each other. And it's not that we don't fight. We fight all the time. But we never leave a fight angry. Like, nobody ever storms out and slams a door. Like, we stay in it until we can reach some mutual understanding. And that doesn't mean that we're always going to end up seeing eye to eye on everything. But we have the emotional tools and the commitment to each other to you know wrestle through whatever we're going through so that we can deflate whatever intensity surrounds that disagreement i think that that's super crucial the other thing is we're both independent people and we're not looking to each other to you know quote unquote like complete us like we're complete on our own you know and 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 our sense of who we are and our well-being is not contingent upon our partner's perspective of us. It's really our relationship to our higher power or our spiritual interior lives that, you know, give us that sense of meaning. So, when you opt out of looking at that person like their validation is what's crucial to me feeling good about myself today, I think that you stake a claim for, you know, a healthier long-term partnership. So, I think those are two crucial things that have kept us together. You know, Julie's super independent. She doesn't, you know, need me to be by her side 24/7. She just went up to Mount Shasta to do some kind of voodoo witchcraft stuff around <laughs> around the election and I'm like, "Go knock yourself out. That's amazing." So, it's not a relationship that that is dependent upon the amount of time that we spend with each other, but that time has to be quality time. And when I'm with her, she's with me, We try to be present and focused with each other and non-distracted.
0: Yeah, I love that. Communication is so key. Presence is so key. And I think if anyone wants to listen to your love story, go back and listen to episode 83. I'll put a link for it in the show notes. You share how you guys met in a yoga class. It was a really beautiful story. You also sleep on the roof in a tent. Do you still do that?
1: (laughs) You did your homework, Melissa. Yes, I, I, I sleep in a tent still. I had to move it off the roof because it was getting too windy up there. So now it's on the ground. But I do sleep in a tent and everyone seems to you know, have an opinion about that. They take it as a referendum on the state of, of my marriage with Julie. And it, it's not that at all. It was born out of struggles that I was having with sleep. And an argument that Julie and I were having, quite frankly, because she likes the bedroom warm and I like it cold. In fact, I like it as cold as it can possibly be. And this was not working for us. No matter what temperature we set the room, it would always be too cold for Julie and it would always be too hot for me. And we would bicker about it. And then a couple of years ago we did a sleep out like on our we have a flat roof at our house and in the summertime we can project movies on this flat wall and we get the kids out there in sleeping bags and have a you know a good old time and we all slept on the roof that night and i just had the most phenomenal night of sleep like in the desert air here no matter how hot it is during the day it always it's always quite cool at night and something about the cold air and the fresh air and just being outdoors gave me this sense of restfulness that i hadn't experienced and i woke up thinking I'm going to sleep out here again tonight. This was unbelievable. But you wake up and there's condensation all over you and you're all wet. So then I was like, well, I'm going to get a tent. And Julie's like, great, go get a tent. And it just kind of started from there. And the truth is, like, I do sleep better outside and I enjoy it. And Julie and I have our intimate time and that's, you know, all intact and fine. You know, she's not into it. It's not her thing, but she's perfectly fine with me doing it. And I think the second aspect of that that's interesting is that in some level, Melissa, it's a bit of a a stoic practice or a kind of experiment in minimalism. I know that, you know, I've been sleeping in a tent essentially every single night for maybe two and a half years at this point, maybe almost three. And not only is it tolerable, like it's preferable to me. So in the event that we lose everything or I become, you know... (laughs) completely impoverished and that i'm okay sleeping outdoors in a tent like i don't really need that much you know and i i live a life of bounty and we live in a beautiful place and i like nice things but i think there is something valuable about being okay with very little that allows you to live your life a little bit more courageously and it empowers you to take risks that you wouldn't ordinarily knowing that like, if the worst case scenario was that I ended up sleeping in a tent under a, under a bridge or something like that, that I would still be okay. Hopefully that won't happen.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it's what works for you. And I think coming back to relationships and practicing what I call CCC, crystal clear communication. And I talk a lot about this in my second book, Open Wide. And when we have that crystal clear communication with our partner. That's when we flow so much more effortlessly. And I love that. You're like, this is what works for me. So I'm going to do that. Is that cool with you? Yep, let's do it. You know, sometimes if my husband and I have been having two or three nights of repeated bad sleep for some reason, whatever the reason is, he'll sleep in the other room. And then we come back in the morning and I'm like, how did you sleep? He's like, amazing. How did you sleep? I'm like, oh, the best sleep ever. And so it's nice, you know. Nothing was wrong like sometimes we just do that if you need a really good night's sleep and you got to do what's right for you.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of stigma around it though. If you do that, then there must be something wrong with your relationship and that prevents people from getting the best night of sleep that they can because they don't they don't want to create that sense that there's a lack of intimacy in the relationship.
0: Mm, exactly. Exactly, but it's not the case at all. Tell us about how you and Julie still work on your marriage today. Like, are there things that you guys do today besides the practicing clear communication? Do you have any other tools that you guys use today?
1: Mm, I mean, I think it's important. You know, we have four kids. I have 2 stepsons that are older, 25 and 24, and two, we have two teenage daughters.
0: Included in the four or two on top of the four?
1: Yeah, yeah. Included in the four. Right now, actually, there's seven people living in our house. There's me and Julie. There's Tyler and Trapper, 25 and 24, who are my stepsons, who have lived basically most of the time in our house since they were quite young. Their father passed away, Julie's first husband or Julie's former husband. And then we have two teenage daughters, and that's a lot of energy right now. And one of our daughters has a friend who's quarantining with us. So there's a lot of energy in the house. And, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that is that, you know, with that, number of people and all the moving pieces that come with that it's very easy for a marriage or a partnership to become very transactional you know where your conversations are all about logistics like who needs to go where and what bills need to get paid and you become co-managers of you know of a household rather than intimate you know lovers and partners so those are conversations you have to have but they can't monopolize every aspect of the relationship you have to always set aside time to put that away and say, now we're going to go, you know, we're going to go have a date or we're going to go, you know, on a a hike. We're going to take the dogs out or something like that, where it's just us together. So we're nurturing that relationship. I think is super important, you know, especially, you know, when you've been together with somebody as long as I've been with Julie, it's very easy to go on cruise control and take your foot off the gas and just delude yourself into thinking the relationship is what it is and will always be there. And, you know, I always have to remind myself, of the fact that nothing is really static. You know, when I was in treatment, it was impressed upon me that everything that I do, like every thought I entertain, every interaction I have with another human being, every behavior that I indulge, is either moving me towards a drink or away from a drink. You know, there is no stasis. And that's extremely true. I think it's true in everything in life, but it's very true in relationships. You always have to be mindful that it's a fluid dynamic. And when you're not giving it the attention it deserves, you're not feeding it, it will die or wither or become decrepit. And it's hard, you know, that's a lot of work. Sometimes you don't want to do it, especially if you've, you're busy and you are managing a bunch of kids and a bunch of other distractions in your life. But, you know, when you have the wherewithal and you make that commitment, it pays, you know, enormous dividends down the line.
0: hundred percent. Definitely. How have you and Julie consciously parented to raise children as sovereign beings, as the sovereign beings that they are? What are some of your tips or advice on raising children as sovereign beings?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I'd say, I wish I could tell you I've mastered this. It's a constantly evolving learning process where every day (laughs) we're challenged with this.
0: Don't worry. I'm still on my journey too. I have a 14-year-old stepson, so I've not yet mastered it yet, but I'm aware of it
1: trying to parent a 16-year-old girl right now amidst the coronavirus has been an enormous undertaking and not without its difficulties. But I would say that one of the principles is that we've always, you know, treated them with respect. Not that they, you know, needed to be treated as adults when they were children, but we always tried to kind of respect their sovereignty and perhaps allow them, you know, a longer leash and a broader, you know, kind of life experience than the average parent would when they are at a young age. So that means like not talking down to them and allowing them to make their own decisions and mistakes and giving them that level of respect as sovereign beings perfectly created. And I think what that has done is instill them with a sense of self or at least a process of self-inquiry, because we're not dictating how they should behave and what they need to do or not do. And it's proven, you know, we have our moments with it, but the boys who are now, you know, they're men at this point, and they're just remarkable, beautiful human beings and artists, they're musicians. And they moved home during, you know, they, ha- they were living in town, they had their own apartment in Hollywood, and they move home. And it's just been a blessing to have them around. But, you know, there's speed bumps along the way, of course. You know, Mathis, our 16-year-old, is she's pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable. And that's kind of what you do when you're a teenage girl. And she's, you know, got this spirit and this strength and she's got a lot of opinions and she's a leader and she's a go-getter and she's a hustler and an entrepreneur and all these amazing qualities. You know, that energy is just going in a million directions right now. So figuring out how to put the guardrails up as a parent is, you know, the the kind of puzzle that Julie and I are trying to solve right now. And I understand that this is a particular kind of phase in her life, I think all these qualities that she has are going to make her an amazing human and an amazing adult, but we just have to get her through this healthy phase right now. And in terms of kind of all the healthy lifestyle stuff that is part and parcel of who Julie and I are and what we do for a living, we've tried to instill all of those in our children. And, you know, some of them have just adopted it and, you know, they're 100% in, and others are like, I'm not into that right now. Like I need to go, you know, I need to rebel and have my own experience. And we've rather than tried to make them live the way that we live, we allow them that experience. You know, we've taught them a certain way on some level, it's natural that they want to reject that because they have to establish their own identity. And providing that space rather than trying to you know, clamp down on them has been our philosophy. And I think only time will tell whether that was you know, that's the best strategy, but that's kind of how we think about it and look at it.
0: Yeah, I love that. Just allowing them to be. And I know for me personally, it's trusting that we've done enough and we've educated and if they do rebel and they want to go party and drink and eat unhealthily, it's like, okay, for me, that's where I have to look at my attachment, my I'm gripping, I'm holding on to the ideal of what I want it to be. That's my expectation. So there's always like how I react. There's always lessons in it for me if I'm being triggered by it, where my husband, Nick, he very much is like totally neutral. He's a sovereign being. He can do this where I'm like, But, but like, I just want him to eat, you know, all the good food. (laughs) And I can, I witness, I witness my expectation and my gripping and my attachment to it. And then there's work for me to kind of dive deeper into that.
1: Right. And that's certainly something that we're experiencing right now. And, and, you know, the healthy path is you have to let go of that. And, and, you know, you have to love them unconditionally. You know, their job is not to love you. Your job is to love them. And, it's not their job to validate you in any regard. So, you parented them in a certain way and baked into who they are on some level. And then you have to release the reins and allow them to have their process. And to the extent that you hold on to that, you're creating your own suffering for yourself. Also, you know, that energy is felt by the child or the adolescent. And that's only going to exacerbate the compulsion on their part to kind of push back and, and rebel against whatever it is that you're holding to so tightly.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're our biggest spiritual assignments, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, they become, they become our teachers for sure.
0: Oh yes, definitely. Yeah, I just look at you and Julie and I love your relationship. I think you are such a beautiful role model of what it means to be in a conscious union and raise conscious children and you're such a great model for that. And same with the health side of things as well and everything that you do. You are a trailblazer for Mother Nature, really. And we're seeing more and more plant-based athletes now, thanks to things like Game Changers and films like that. What would you say to someone who is thinking about going more plant-based or wanting to experiment with it?
1: I would say to that person, give it a try. You know, why don't you go 100% plant-based for 30 days and see how you feel. If it doesn't agree with you, I will gladly refund you your, (laughs) your poor diet and lifestyle choices. I have yet to meet anybody who hasn't done that in good faith and come out the other side with an epiphany about the relationship between the foods that we put in our body and the energy that we experience throughout the day. I think with guys, you know, they get really worried about the protein question, which I think is a non-issue completely. You know, I don't know if we need to go down that rabbit hole, but you know, I've been eating plant-based for 14 years at this point. Yeah, quite a long time. And at age 54, I'm still able to go out and, you know, kill it and crush it and crank workouts you know, out and I've been back in the gym during coronavirus. I kind of went back into the gym to see if I could put some strength back on. I've been running and cycling and, you know, doing endurance stuff for so long, just as a kind of a new experience for myself. And I was able to put on quite a bit of muscle mass pretty quickly, you know, at, cause you worry at, you know, I'm 54 now, like with sarcopenia, is it going to be more difficult for me to, bulk up and I bulked up almost too quickly where I had to take my foot off the gas. So in terms of you know athletic performance and strength and you know all the things that that dudes worry about, it just hasn't been an issue at all in my life. And I think what people should be thinking about is how much fiber they're eating. We're all fiber deficient. People are not eating enough of fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and grains. And when we can have that experience for ourselves, the lights kind of go on. So I would encourage anybody to check it out. And if you're not into like the 100% full bore kind of experiment thing, my suggestion is to take one habit that you have, let's say you just love putting milk in your coffee in the morning or something like that, and make one simple tweak or switch and try oat milk or almond milk or coconut milk, And that might taste weird or be uncomfortable for you for a little bit, but, you know, do that for a couple of weeks until you acclimate to it and realize like, oh, I don't miss that dairy anymore. And then, you know, tackle another small habit and just do it in bite-sized chunks and move forward in, in that way. I mean, I think everybody's different and everybody has a different way that they tackle, you know, trying to master a new habit. But the important thing is, you know, what direction are you moving in?
0: absolutely and then feel how different it feels in your body I think yeah like you said I love experiments I love trying things out for however long whether it's a week or 30 days but just gift yourself that and then tune in and see how you feel my brother is a professional athlete he's a professional rugby union player and they definitely have that stigma around being very bulky and he looks at my husband and I, and he's like, I would love to be fully plant-based. I would love, and I'm like, give it a go. But he just has that conditioning where he's quite conditioned and fearful that he needs that protein. Even though when he comes and stays with us, he feels incredible. He's like, I need to come detox and he'll come stay with me for a week. And he eats all organic and he just loves it. And he feels incredible, but still there's that bit of fear for him that am I going to lose too much weight or whatever it is. But then you just look at people like yourself, watch the documentary, The Game Changers, and just Google all of the incredible people out there like yourselves that are doing amazing things on a plant-based lifestyle and look at the results you're getting.
1: Yeah, I mean it's one thing, you know, I'm an endurance athlete, so you know, being lean is really important. But if you watch game changers and you see people like James Wilkes and Nima Delgado, the bodybuilder, and Damian Mander, who is a Australian special forces sniper who's now has this amazing organization, anti-poaching organization in, in Africa. Like these are big aggressive alpha males, you know, that any rugby player would look at and identify with. So all those voices are needed because I think every, you know, every individual has the ability to connect with a certain different type of person. But, you know, it's interesting that, you know, like, has he seen the game changers and did that make an impact on him?
0: He did watch it and he was like, yeah, that's amazing. And then I think he did it for like two days and then went straight back in because the conditioning is so strong. It's so strong. It's been deeply embedded in his brain since he started his career. And, you know, who knows? He's on his own journey, and that's another one I've got to let go of attachment to and just, I'm here, I'll make you beautiful vegan nachos whenever you want to come over and just do my best to show up for him. But maybe I'll rewatch it with him when he's next here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've just found that, you know, personally for me, I'm not really in the business of trying to get people to convert to you know, my lifestyle or my way of seeing things. I'm here to share my experience and to speak when asked confidently and proudly about the choices that I've made and why I've made them, but I'm careful to not get attached to the outcomes or the results of those. And I think when you put a lot of emotional energy into some other person doing or not doing a certain thing that you wish that they would, again, that goes back to just creating suffering for yourself. And it's not an effective strategy anyway, in terms of trying to get people to shift their mindset and, and habits.
0: Mm, and it's exhausting. And whether it's your brother or your children... You've just got to focus on you showing up as the best version of you and doing what's true and right for you.
1: 100%.
0: I have to interrupt this conversation to tell you about one of today's podcast sponsors, Blue Blocks, the only blue light glasses backed by science. Now, if you follow me on social media, you will know that I love my blue blocking glasses and I wear them every day because they help alleviate digital eye strain keep your hormones balanced, and help you get a deeper, more restorative sleep. They are made in Australia, which means they are very high quality, and all their glasses come in readers, prescription, and non-prescription. And you can even send in your own frames and have them add their lens technology to your frames. And for every pair purchased, they donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who then gift them to someone in need in the developing countries. How awesome is that? So to get 15% off, head to blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and enter the code MELISSA at the checkout. Now let's get back to this conversation. What is your definition of success and what do you attribute your success to?
1: Oh, wow. That's a good question. I think success is dictated by pursuing a life of personal purpose and meaning that is also in service to other human beings or an idea that's greater than yourself. That's what I found. And pursuing that initially for me was quite scary because I came from a very traditional structure and upbringing, you know, like you go to a certain school and then you do, you know, you get this job and you go to law school and et cetera. And that was an equation that for me personally, you know, was not satisfying and did not make me happy. And I was terrified to step outside of it because it was so contrary to my programming growing up. But when I began to, you know, I made this commitment to myself that I was just going to start putting energy into things that I cared about, irrespective of, you know, whether that was acceptable, you know, in the perspective of what somebody like me should be doing to make a living. And the irony is that I've become more successful by doubling down on that strategy. So it's a kind of elusive thing. Like, I think it's different for every single person. And I think it demands that we all engage in that inner work to try to become more connected to who we are and what makes us unique and what it is that we want to bring voice to. And that's going to look different for every single person. But the more we can pull on those threads and invest energy in whatever that thing is, I think that our lives expand in proportion to that. That's certainly been my experience. And, you know, every success that I've had, I can trace back to, those kinds of decisions of basically acting in, in the face of fear and having the courage to you know, express myself authentically.
0: Absolutely. So beautiful. Did you feel like you were on purpose and doing your life's work when you were a lawyer?
1: No, no. I felt like I was doing what was expected of me and what would be socially rewarded but I never felt any kind of emotional connection to what I was doing. And I was dying. But, you know, I grew up as a swimmer. I knew how to suffer like in training. And I just thought everyone was suffering like I was suffering. And I just had to gut it out. I didn't realize until later that there are actually people that enjoy that profession, you know, <laughs> and God bless them, you know, but that wasn't me. But I had to be in so much pain with it before. I was willing to act on the fear of the unknown. Like I grew up in a house where, you know, there was no entrepreneurial spirit. Like it was a very education focused household. But the idea of doing something outside of the box was just not part of my kind of mental equation. So it took a lot for me to do that and there were plenty of times where I thought I was insane and a lot of the things that I was doing didn't make sense and we're not putting food on the table and we were having a really difficult time financially and it wasn't clear that we were going to make it to the other side and a lot of our friends were like what are you doing or would tell Julie like rich has lost his mind like when is he going to go back and be a lawyer like you guys are going to lose your house you know we talked about this last time but she always had my back and she was the strength that I needed when I didn't have it to say, no, this is the path forward. You have to continue to pull on this thread because the answers that you seek will be found only through this process that you're going through, which is a process I don't quite understand, but certainly seems to be important to you. And having that kind of support, without that, I would not have made it because it really did require that we act in contradiction to like everything around us that was telling us that we had lost our minds.
0: Luckily, you did follow and you kept pulling that thread and listen to Julie's advice because what you've created is amazing. Your podcasts, your speaking, your books, everything is just amazing. So, so grateful that you did follow that and you continue to follow that.
1: I appreciate that, Melissa. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey and it's super rewarding. And I do, like I said at the beginning, like I wake up every day, like just pinch me. I can't believe that I get to not only do this for a living and have amazing conversations with individuals like yourself, but that I also have domain over how I spend my time, you know, which is also an incredible gift that most people don't have. Exactly,
0: exactly. Exactly. What is lighting you up and bringing you the most joy right now in your life?
1: Well, I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think that this pandemic has forced all of us to slow down in such a way that it's almost uncomfortable. The idea that we can't pursue our lives at the pace that we're used to is compelling us to just sit and be with ourselves and with our loved ones. And that's hard, you know, that's hard because you're forced to look in the mirror and kind of take inventory of who you are and the decisions that you've made. But I actually am enjoying that as a natural introvert, (laughs) you know, this opportunity to be at home is so unique and will never be visited upon us again. And I remind myself every day when I wake up that I don't want to get to the other side of it. We're all so in a rush for everything to get back to normal, right? But what was so great about normal? This is an unbelievable opportunity to not only do things that you wouldn't ordinarily have the opportunity to do, but to really invest in the people that you care about that are in your respective homes. So I'm feeling blessed that I have this opportunity to be with my family and my kids in a way that I would be unable to if things were normal. I'd be flying around and doing a lot of travel and distracted by my work. So, That doesn't mean that I'm naturally grateful for that every day because I do like all those things and I do miss them. But by trying to remind myself of how valuable and precious this moment and this opportunity is, that tends to light me up. And I've used the pandemic to work on creative projects that I just never had time to do. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I completed this book project that had been haunting me for a long time and we're still in the pandemic and it's coming out now. So that's super exciting too.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, it's such a beautiful time to really slow down. And for me personally, all of my friendships in my immediate neighborhood, my community physically here, I mean, I have friends all over the world, but I've been able to really drop so much deeper with the people that are physically closer to me And I'm so grateful for that. It's just allowed our relationships to deepen and richen. So I'm really loving that part of it. And yeah, the slowing down and the less travel, the less flying as well has just been, has been lovely. But yeah, I'm like you too. I love traveling and speaking, but it's also been a nice little switch up.
1: Right. A little bit, a little bit of a switch.
0: Yeah, exactly. What are you working on, or would like to improve within yourself right now?
1: Hmm. I think being more naturally inclined to gratitude is my mountain to climb. It's not my natural disposition, as I mentioned earlier. Like I'm, I'm petty and irascible and selfish and self-seeking and searching for external validation, and like I have this soup of negative character defects that are constantly making themselves known and I engage in this kind of game of whack-a-mole like I I knock one down and the other one pops up it's like squeezing a water balloon every single day and it's exhausting and luckily I have tools for keeping those things at bay but you know I have such a like it's almost I mean jealousy is too strong a word but such a respect and a reverence for people that carry themselves with that kind of easy gratitude and I aspire to that so I'm working on Trying to inhabit more of that in my life. And it's a practice. Like I have a gratitude practice. Like, and when I engage in that practice, I'm able to kind of flirt with that sensibility a little bit more. Still comes hard for me, but the more I can kind of live in that space, the happier I am. And also, the happier everyone else is around me who gets tired of me being a pain in their butt.
0: So nice. I love it. I love those little gratitude rituals. They're so beautiful. And planting them throughout your day, whether you do it over the dinner table or first thing in the morning or writing it down, they just make such a huge impact on your life. It reminds you, they're like anchor points where you can stop and go, oh, okay, yeah, what are three things you're grateful for right now? It's such a beautiful reminder to come back to what is important and what matters.
1: And just to maintain your balance and your equanimity. I mean, you know, right now, here we are a couple days after the election in the United States, and it's pretty crazy. And it's very easy to just lose yourself in the news cycle or allow yourself to become emotionally dysregulated by all these external events and the seeming chaos of the world spinning off its axis. And you know, for me, I can get caught up in that. And It's not that I don't watch the news, and it's not that I don't have strong political opinions, but it's being aware of the difference between what I can do to make a difference and my own personal well-being. And I have to create boundaries around that stuff so that I can show up in the world present and with that equanimity so that I can make the best decisions for myself
0: hundred percent. Boundaries are so important in all areas of your life, whether it's business boundaries, business relationships, or personal relationships. We need to have those boundaries. And that doesn't mean you're selfish or that you're not spiritual. It just shows that this is what I believe in. This is what's true for me. And you get to decide who moves in and out of those boundaries, what you allow in and out of those boundaries. You can be flexible with them. You can change your mind, but I talk a lot about this. And I think one of the reasons why I stay so balanced within myself, not all the time, but it's because I have these boundaries. You know, I don't have my phone dinging and pinging 24 seven. Like I choose when I'm going to respond. I choose when I'm going to open social media and emails. And people are like, I feel so overwhelmed. And don't get me wrong, I do at times too, but that's when I'm ignoring my boundaries. So I love that you brought that up. It's really important that we look at all the different areas of our life and where we need to maybe set some boundaries, even with our devices, you know, and emails and everything.
1: Perhaps mostly with our devices, right? I think we're all, to some extent, living reactively in our lives because we're so impulsed by the supercomputer that sits in our pocket and the very artfully, scientifically crafted Applications that we find in there that are made specifically to entice us and induce that dopamine response to the extent that we're almost powerless to put it away, and that requires a lot of work, that boundary, but when you erect it, and I'm not saying anything that everybody isn't already aware of, we all know that we compulsively use our phones and how hard it is to put them away. But when we can summon the ability to do that, everybody will tell you that their life is better and that they're happier and they're more present and more engaged in not just their lives, but with the people that they care about.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Now, let's switch gears. I would love to hear from you. If you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the entire world, besides your books, let's pretend they're already in there. What is one other book you would choose to put in the curriculum?
1: Hmm, That's a good question. I mean, there's so many great books. I could list off a bunch of the classics, you know, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius or things like that. I mean, some of those books are already on academic curriculums across the country. A book that I think would be really great for young people to read would be Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. He's a computer science professor at Georgetown University and has written extensively about what we were just talking about, the allure and the power of these devices to distract us. And as a parent of young people, I see it being played out right in front of me all day long and I do it myself, the extent to which we allow our digital lives to dictate how we conduct ourselves and as a result we live reactively and it's become more and more difficult to carve out quiet time for ourselves we have lost the ability to engage in boredom and i think boredom is super important in cultivating the creative spirit in the wake of no boredom and constant distraction and 24 7 entertainment no matter where you find yourself we lack that ability for time alone and reflection and self-analysis and just creativity. When do we have the time to just sit around and journal or draw or be bored like I was as a kid? And I think the downstream impact of that remains to be seen. But when you have a generation of young people who don't know how to be bored and never need to be bored, what happens to them when they become adults. And so I think we need some conscious awareness that begins at a young age around these devices and how potent they are. And that messaging has to come not from the parents who are shaming kids for using these things, but from an informed place of somebody like Cal Newport who can explain it to them in a way that they can understand so that they can shift that fulcrum of values towards spending time alone and, and cultivating, you know, their own unique voices because we need those voices and we need them to be fully formed and authentic to those people and not crafted in reaction to whatever they're looking at at TikTok or on Instagram.
0: Mm, absolutely. We'll link to that book in the show notes. And there's also the Social Dilemma documentary, which is out at the moment, which can give you a bit more of an insight into what we're talking about as well.
1: Everybody should watch that movie. I think that's the most important film of the year, 100%.
0: 100%. Oh, yeah. It's so important. It made me kind of go, oh, yeah, there's still so much room for improvement w- with my habits, like so much. And it really opened my eyes even wider. And I'm thinking about my stepson who's 14, like I mentioned. And on the school holidays, you know, we have boundaries in our house when he lives with us. We have boundaries around the phone. And I love seeing what he comes up with during the day when he has to entertain himself. So I'll just walk past his room and he's got like cards, like playing cards all over the bed. Or he's got like all of his coins from all different countries all over the world. And he's put them in piles and he's like, Come and have a look at this. I want to show you this. Like, and just the things that he comes up with and like to entertain himself, or, you know, he is making something out of origami, just amazing. And inside, I'm just like, oh, that's so great. Maybe he was going to say, I'm bored, or can I do this, or can I do something on my phone? But instead, he went and did something else. And what he came up with was just really beautiful. And we want to encourage children, especially, you know, the younger ones, to not lose that, not lose that creativity that comes is born in those pockets of boredom, quote unquote boredom. I remember as a kid, I'd say, I'm bored. And then two seconds later, I've created something amazing and magical out of nothing. And I think, yeah, it's such a beautiful trait. And as adults, let's try and get some of that back.
1: Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's beautiful that he's able to you know, indulge himself in that way.
0: Yes. And being an only child, I think as well, he's played on his own for his whole life. So he hasn't had siblings. I have an older sister and a younger brother and my husband has two siblings as well. So we've always got a sibling to play with, but he's just really been able to play with himself. And it's such a beautiful thing to witness and it inspires me. It really does inspire me.
1: Mm, Very cool. Very cool. I need a little bit more of that in my house.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, talk to me about how your day looks. I want to know about your morning routine and how your whole day flows and what rituals and do you meditate? When do you work out? Can you kind of walk us through a quote-unquote standard day in your life?
1: Yeah, I mean, every day is a little bit different, but as a general rule, I would say that I try to reserve the first half of the day for myself and my personal projects. I try not to schedule any phone calls or interviews or anything like that before 12 o'clock every day. And I don't always succeed. Today, I had to do a podcast with a guy in London. So we did that at seven o'clock in the morning. That's unusual. I mean, typically, I don't set an alarm and I wake up when the sun rises or, you know, generally, you know, around six or six thirty. I get up and I make a coffee, and then I go and I do my meditation practice, 20 minutes, and then I do a gratitude list, and then I do some journaling, and that would be a typical like kickoff morning routine part of the day. And then after that, I go and I train, so I go for a trail run, or I get on my bike, or I go swim. Or lately, I've been, you know, going to a gym where they've opened it for safe social distancing, working out. And then that will typically take me up to around, you know, 11 or 12 o'clock, depending upon the length of the workout. And then I come back and then it's about my professional day. So whether I have a podcast that I'm preparing for and going to be conducting that afternoon or I'm doing the post-production on another show or I'm working on you know, this book or the marketing plan for the book or all that kind of stuff, emails and phone calls, etc. And then, you know, I work at home. I'm in a right now, as you see me, I'm in a shipping container in my backyard, which is my office on our property. So I get to be around my kids throughout the day, eat lunch at home and eat dinner at home. And we make our evening meal like the communal family experience. So typically Julie cooks. Cause she's an amazing cook and everyone would prefer that she cook rather than me. Although the boys have been handling some of the cooking duty lately, which is great. And then we eat dinner as a family. And then in the evening we watch a documentary or we try to, you know, maybe have an hour of Netflix or something like that with everyone together. And then I go to bed around, I try to go to bed between nine and 10, typically closer to nine.
0: Awesome. Sounds fun. And I love that you've got a shipping container with your, where your office is. I think that's awesome. It's so good. Last time we were in LA, I was chatting with Julie and she was like, come over. And it didn't work out the timing. I think you had to go somewhere to pick up your daughter or something. I can't even remember what happened, but next time we are in LA, we'll definitely pop on over. Yeah. And whenever you're down here, you have to come and visit. If you love nature, you will love it here.
1: I love Australia so much. As I think you know, I spent December, the entire month of December last year in Australia. I was in Bondi for like three weeks, two and a half weeks or something like that, and then went up to Byron Bay. I'd never been to Byron before, and I was just, I did not want to leave. Like, I was ready to just say this is my new home. So. I could foresee a future there, but I haven't ventured further north of Byron. So there's so much, you know, that remains for me to explore. And I know I would love the Gold Coast.
0: Oh, yeah, you will love it. The whole thing, like the East Coast, the West Coast, beach, nature, surfing, sunshine. You will love it. Like Australia is such a beautiful country. So definitely check out more of it.
1: I will. I will. Once I'm able to travel again, I don't know what the situation is now, I think you have to quarantine for a couple of weeks if you were to go there at this point. But hopefully we'll get to a place where we can travel a little bit more generously in the not too distant future.
0: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Fingers crossed, hey? Mm. All right. I have three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? I guess so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know. We'll see.
0: What is one thing that we can do today for our health?
1: Drink more water. I think we're all chronically dehydrated or underhydrated. So, if you can create a healthy habit around maintaining that hydration by drinking more more water, I think that would be a really amazing thing to master and so easy to do and accessible to everybody, of course.
0: Yes, definitely. And what's one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life, so more abundance in all areas of our life?
1: Hmm. Good question. You know, I really believe that when you pursue the things that you care about most, the finances take care of themselves. And that doesn't mean that it's easy and it's certainly rarely overnight, but I think the more you can place that investment and that heart and that work ethic into, you know, the things that light you up as an individual, that's the path to wealth ultimately. And it's not to say you need to quit your job or do something rash or insane, but I really think that that's how you create a life of true wealth, which means you're doing something for your professional vocation that doesn't feel like work. And it's such a gift when you're able to experience that. And I know, you know that's the case with yourself and it certainly is with me. And you know, most people never get a taste of that. So to the extent that I can encourage people to experience some level of that in their lives i think is worth exploring even if it's just you know a little side hustle on the side but i think the people that are the wealthiest and by wealthy i mean you know people who are very you know wealthy isn't just financial it's like you know i consider wealth To be a broader equation of well being and stability and grace and service and all of these things. The people that are the best examples of that are the people who will tell you, I've never worked a day in my life because their passion is so interconnected with what they do for a living.
0: Mm, Absolutely. So important. And the final one what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life?
1: To give more love you know we're all seeking love we're trying to receive love but love is experienced in the gift of it so when you approach that idea of love not from a perspective of how can i get it and instead flip that coin and start giving it that's how you experience and bring and invite more love into your life so stop chasing it and start expressing it and that's how your life is going to change
0: 100% and it can feel vulnerable and maybe scary for some people, but it's one of those things. The more you give, the more you express, the more you share your love with others, the more is just going to come flooding back to you.
1: Mm-hmm. 100%.
0: Rich, is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't get to ask you?
1: I think a good way to round this out is to leave people with a little encouragement around their own capabilities. You know, my if my story stands for anything, it's that, you know, we're all sitting atop mountains of potential that remain untapped. And, you know, my path has been one of of trying to experience more of what that's like in my life. How can I get outside of my comfort zone and test myself? And every time that I do that, I experience personal growth and I experience a boost in self-esteem and I walk away from it empowered and with a story that can be helpful to other people. So I think understanding that you are capable of more than you're currently expressing in your life is a great starting point to leave people with. With the encouragement of trying to find something in your life to bring expression to that by testing yourself and walking through whatever fear you have around that thing that you always wish that you did or, you know, are doing that you haven't done yet. And taking a step towards that, you know, back to this conversation around stasis, like your life is not static. Whatever you're experiencing right now, you have the power to change that. And again, that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, but that process begins with getting out of your comfort zone and doing something different. And should you fall on your face, not considering that a failure, but merely a learning experience to continue to grow.
0: Mm, Every time we fall over, it's an opportunity to grow, to learn, and to evolve. And that's what we're here for. We're here to evolve our consciousness. That's the only thing. The evolution of our soul is the only thing we take to the next realm with us. You know, we can't take anything else. And so we're here to grow and learn and evolve. And the more we can look at those situations when we fall down and go, okay, how can I learn from this? Like, what can I learn? How can I grow from it? That is the magic. That's where the juice is. So I love that so much. Thank you for mentioning that.
1: Thank you. For having me, I appreciate it.
0: Oh, it's been such an honor. And I want to personally thank you so much for not only giving us your time today, but for being such a light in the world and for all of the podcasts over the last eight years. I can't believe it's been eight years. That is huge. That's amazing. That's such a huge achievement. And I think mine's probably been three years. So, yeah, that's amazing. Eight years. And all the books, the retreats you and Julie do, the speaking, everything, the programs, everything that you guys have created and share in the world. You're such an inspiration to so many people. You serve so many people. You're such a light. And you give so much that I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to give back to you. How can we serve you today?
1: I appreciate that. Well, I've got this new book out called Voicing Change that is available everywhere now. And you can find it on my website at richroll.com. We're shipping globally. It's a self-published book. You can get it in Australia. The shipping cost might be a little steep, but we can get it to you there. And this book is really a way of honoring this idea that I have that meaningful conversation matters, you know, and I think right now, I think you would agree with me, Melissa, we're in a very strange moment in time, particularly in the United States, where we feel very divided. And if you watch The Social Dilemma, you can see this erosion, this breakdown in our ability to communicate and identify common ground and agree upon a shared sort of set of facts. And the path forward, in my mind, is conversation. It's having exchanges like this where two people get together and hash it out in real time in this live experiment in thinking out loud. And over the course of doing the podcast for eight years, I've had the gift of spending time with some remarkable people, and it's only affirmed that conviction that I have that we're hardwired for these kinds of conversations. And we live in a clickbait, you know, soundbite world where we're just not exposed to it in the manner in which we're designed to. Like, we miss that Campfire experience. And I think podcasts are a way of recapturing some aspect of that in our lives. And I think that's a big reason why they become so popular. So I wrote this book because I wanted to honor the guests that I've had over the course of the show. And it features 50 conversations that I've had over the years with some essays that have been contributed by some of the guests and, of course, thoughts by me. And the idea was to package it in a beautiful coffee table book with amazing photographs and a real fine aesthetic sensibility to it to be a reminder to the fan of all the people that they've enjoyed over the years and also kind of an introductory piece for somebody who's not familiar with what I do to get a sense of, of what it's all about. So I'm super proud of it. We're just launching it right now and it's been super exciting. So I would encourage people to check that out.
0: Definitely. Congratulations. And we'll link to it in the show notes. It sounds beautiful and I cannot wait to check it out. And I want to encourage everyone else to dive into your podcast, your books, everything that you do. You're such an inspiration. And I'm so grateful that we've been able to connect again and have you back on the show and for all the work that you do. And next time you're in Australia, you must come and say hello.
1: We'll make it happen. I really appreciate you having me on, Melissa. And I'm so jealous that you're in the Gold Coast right now. So at some point, I will find myself there and I will be sure to give you a bell.
0: I'm on the Sunshine Coast, which is a bit further.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Okay, so there's the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast, right?
0: Yes, they're about two hours difference.
1: (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'll figure it out.
0: Yeah, it's confusing. But if you love beautiful beaches and nature and warm weather, you will love them all.
1: Mm. Well, I look forward to experiencing that.
0: Yes, we can't wait to have you. Thank you so much, Rich.
1: Thanks, Melissa. Appreciate it. Have a good one.
0: I loved this conversation so much. What a beautiful man. I got so much out of it. I feel so inspired. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a review in iTunes or on your podcast app because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. Speaking of review of the week, I want to read this week's review and the winner of a pair of blue light blocking glasses from the Melissa range, which is pretty cool. And this week's review is from Enya, the nourished nook, and it's a five star review titled Peace of Mind. And she says, Melissa, every time I listen to your podcast, the storm clears my mind. I feel peaceful, clear, and inspired. I've been listening to your podcast for two years now, and it has completely changed my life. I'm so grateful for you and the endless knowledge I continue to gain. Enya, thank you so much. I'm so grateful you are the winner of the blue block pair of Melissa glasses. All you have to do is email us with your address and we'll send that over to you, which is pretty cool. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini. And for your chance to win a copy of Rich's latest book, Voicing Change, all you have to do is tell me your top key takeaways from this episode, and then I will pick a winner. Pretty easy. And for everything that Rich and I mentioned in today's show, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 372. Now, before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode,